Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight it is March 28th of 2013. Tonight, our guests will be Susan Godley and Jennifer smith Ramey, and they will be talking about the Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach, which they have uh, developed and tested, and it's an evidence-based approach. It should be a really interesting show. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are free of charge, a lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guests are right here. Um, how are you doing this evening, Susan and Jennifer? Very good. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having inviting us on the show. Doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, Susan, I'm going to let you kick us off, and I'm going to kind of alternate, hopefully. And so what is the Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach? Okay, thank you. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, actually, we we often refer to it as ACRA. It's a little easier than the, that uh, all all that long title, but um, some people may know that this. Uh, originally, there was an adult community reinforcement approach, and that approach, which was developed in the 1970s um, by a number of people, um, was adapted for adolescents and then studied in the 1990s for adolescents and. I think that a good way to think of it is that it's a package of treatment components, and some of those components um, include some assessment and planning, and we do things like a happiness scale where we look at a lot of different areas or find out about how happy adolescents are in a lot of different areas in their life. We have some skill training similar to cognitive behavior therapy, and we have some special procedures that we use to try to increase um, adolescents' time spent in good, positive activities. So um, a typical session would start with an adolescent coming in, talking about their week, maybe talking about how they've done and some assignments because we're really interested in changing what they do between sessions more than even what happens during the sessions. And then depending on what's going on in their life, the therapist will choose from this bag of procedures or components that we have. So, for example, if an adolescent is having problems at school uh, with a particular teacher, we might go right into problem-solving skills. Um, if they're concerned about going to a party or trying to make a decision about going to a party where they know there'll be alcohol or drug use, we may work with them on some refusal skills. Or maybe they want to try a new activity that they know would not involve drugs, so we would help them plan that out and, and work on that. And then after talking with them, there would be um, a homework assignment at the end of the session for them to go and, and practice some of what we learned during the session. So a lot of different aspects of it, and it's like therapists have this bag of tricks that they're trained on that they can pull out as needed to, to work with the adolescent. Okay. Jennifer, it sounds like this is all done on an outpatient basis. It's no residential version of this? 
<clears throat> excuse me, that's a great question. So initially the research that was conducted on ACRA that made it evidence-based was based on the outpatient model, but it has been adapted and is currently used in residential treatment facilities, including one, uh, a facility uh, where Susan works at Chestnut Health Systems, for one. So it has increasingly been adapted for residential settings. We also use it in terms of outpatient in a variety of settings. It can, of course, be used in the traditional office-based therapy where your youth comes in and sits in an office and does a 45, 60-minute counseling session. But we've also been able, it's a very flexible model, so we've been able to use it. We've been able to do sessions in schools, in the client's homes, in the community. Basically, anywhere we can, can find the clients and their caregivers, we can, can deliver this model. Now, Susan, you said this is an evidence-based approach. What does that mean? Well, evidence-based means that there have been randomized clinical trials uh, with outcomes that showed that it was as good or better than other treatments that it was compared to. And there have you know, uh, been a, a few of these that have um, already taken place. So it's based on these, these studies and, and the outcomes that we derive from the studies. Okay. Well, I was looking a little bit at the uh, information online, and when I saw the SAMHSA study, I noticed it didn't have a control group. Why was that? Well, the reason that um, oftentimes treatment studies don't have control groups is because they have to go through an, an IRB, which is an institutional research board that reviews it. and. If they're concerned, for example, that adolescents who have alcohol and substance use treatment and that have been identified would not get treatment, then oftentimes um, they're not going to support uh, having a complete control group that gets no treatment at all. So in that particular study you referenced, there was a very brief intervention, a five-session intervention that was involved. but. Um, we did not have a no-treatment no control group. Well, how did it compare to the brief intervention? Um, it, um, all, all five interventions that we evaluated in that study uh, did well, did decrease substance use. Um, we did find, however, that ACRA and its arm of the study was the most cost-effective intervention. So that has to do when you look at how much it cost for the treatment and, and context with the outcomes. Okay, so when we look specifically at the brief intervention, because brief intervention is pretty cost effective, I believe, uh, so it, it had better outcomes than the brief intervention? It, it, it was more, co it, actually, uh, ACRA was cheaper to deliver than the brief intervention overall and had it did have uh, better outcomes. Um, the outcomes were not um, statistically better in terms of just the outcomes per se, but when you factored into the cost, it was uh, statistically more cost-effective than the other two interventions that it was compared to, which was a brief intervention and a family intervention. Okay. Um, I've made this point on the show before. I would, you know, I always like to see control groups in these studies because we know that spontaneous remission is 
is the normal outcome of addiction. Most people do get better over time. So it's always important. I really encourage researchers to always have a control group. So, but let's uh, let's move on uh, to some other things. Uh, this, is this, uh, Jennifer, is this anything similar to what Robert Myers did with his craft approach? Yes, um, it, is, it is very similar. Um, Robert Myers is actually one of the researchers, along with um, Susan and her colleagues, that, that did the uh, work on the ACRA model. So it's very similar in terms of using community reinforcement, in terms of being very positive and supportive. That's really one of the most important um, components of this model is that we're not a confrontational, judgmental um, type model. We, we are very positive and supportive with our clients and the families that we work with. And that's not to say that we don't allow for logical and natural consequences to occur when appropriate, but we really do take that same uh, approach along with the the craft model. Well, that's really good because the confrontation has been found to just be extremely negative. Um, so I'm really glad to hear that's a non-confrontational approach. Um, I think there was some other community reinforcement uh, studies done by a man named Higgins, I believe. Um, Susan, could you tell me a little bit about those? Are you familiar with those? Well, a lot of the studies that uh, Stephen Higgins have done have have also used contingency management approach, uh, approaches, which are also know, known as motivational incentives. So they might involve um, some a voucher system where you can earn money in terms of uh, if if you test negative for alcohol or drugs and. Um, those approaches have been found effective in the short term, but not always in the long term um, in terms of maintaining uh, the same levels of, of non-use as, as those that have, say, uh, CRA alone. Okay, so you did not use vouchers or something like that? No, we, we do not use vouchers. And um, what we train people on to most of the time is, is to really find natural reinforcers as much as possible in the adolescence environment. And what we want to have happen is that, you know, that there are that those natural reinforcers take over. So that's why we really work at developing alternative social activities. So, because we know adolescents, they they have to have fun. They want to have fun. That's part of being an adolescent. So you just can't tell them what not to do. You really want to give them new tools and new skills and new ways to have fun and new new friends to spend time with if they um, can't be with the same kids and, and, and be substance-free. So, um, so that's, and even in terms of their relationship with their parents, we really work on improving their communication with their parents because the community reinforcement is all about getting the environment uh, more conducive to recovery to not using. So you want that home environment to be more positive. And, you know, it's always interesting when I see um, comments from uh, parents whose 
whose youth have been through the pro program, they often comment on how their home life is better, how their communication is better. Um, they don't necessarily talk about the drug use, but that's all a part of it. And so that's why we work so hard in, in, in every area of an adolescent's life, because every area is important for recovery, just as every area sometimes plays into the, the alcohol and substance use. Now, this is referred to as a developmentally appropriate approach for adolescents and teenagers. Uh, what does that mean, and how does treatment differ for teenagers or adolescents from adults? Uh, Jennifer, you want to go ahead and answer that one? Sure, absolutely. So when we look at the developmental stages of adolescence, one of the areas that we know is very important throughout adolescence but that really emerges in early adolescence is the importance of the peer groups. And Susan touched upon that a few minutes ago in talking about, you know, one of our goals is for the adolescents to identify and engage with non-using peers and really develop some pro-social, healthy, and positive activities that the, the youth find re rewarding and fun. So some other tasks that that the adolescents are going through is really that emotional distancing from parents. And so we do discuss when we meet with our parents alone that, you know, to some extent that's very much a part of normal adolescent development. We keep that in mind as we work and develop positive communication skills. So in our model, we are working on communication skills not only with the adolescent in their individual therapy sessions, but we also do two parent-only sessions where we're working on the same communication skills with the parents. And then toward the end of treatment, we bring them together and we work on increasing that positive and healthy communication. So we know as well, especially as adolescents progress toward that middle adolescent, that age you know, 14 through 17, that one of the stages is really self-discovery. So ACRA works very nicely within that stage because, again, we're really focusing on trying to identify healthy and positive leisure interests because our goal is ultimately for the clients, our youth, to engage in these healthy and positive behaviors and activities as a replacement for their substance use, but to find the healthy and positive activities more rewarding and more um, reinforcing for them. So as the adolescents move more toward the late adolescence, toward the ages you know, 17 through 19, they're looking for transitioning into careers, um, physically even perhaps distancing themselves from, parent, from parents, looking at um, transitioning into early adulthood. ACRA focuses and emphasizes areas like job-seeking skills, Again, with that emphasis that we want our youth to be engaged in healthy and positive activities in the community. And, of course, having a, a job can be rewarding on many levels. So our ACRA approach is very appropriate for, for our adolescent development. Susan, what is the parent involvement like in the ACRA? Well, we set up... I would say, a minimum level of involvement, and we certainly um, in certain situations are happy to do more. Basically, we ask that the parents or caregivers, whoever is the are the important adults in an adolescent's life, that they attend two sessions on their own, and then they attend two sessions with their adolescent. 
So, so during those two individual sessions, we give the, the parent the opportunity to talk about a little bit about what it's been like for them, for their adolescent to have experienced these problems because often it's, it's had an effect on their life. And um, we talk to them about the research has shown our important uh, practices in terms of helping adolescents um, attain recovery and maintain it. And then we also do, as Jennifer um, mentioned, we train them in communication skills, just like we're training the adolescents so that when we bring them together that they can practice those skills together. And so that way when they go home and they're not in therapy session that some of that can carry over. And we also do things with both the adolescents and, and the the parent, which are called um, reminders to be nice, and we give them a little checklist, and we just ask them to do one one of, of several different things, you know, daily during the week, so to improve the environment of the home. So um, that's mostly what we do, and if there is a need for more in-depth work with the family, um, then certain of our clinicians can do that, and or they can make referrals, but we mainly are are trying to just get in there and give parents some basic skills about how to handle the situation with their adolescent and how to help them in their treatment and make, make progress. Uh, Jennifer, do the adolescents, do they generally check themselves into this treatment or is it, are they referred by someone else? Do their parents make them go? Does the doctor make them go? How's this happen? That's a great question, and it, it is very rare that an adolescent will come um, come to my agency and come knock on my door and say, you know, Miss Jennifer, I, I really need help. I'm, I'm smoking a lot of marijuana. I'm drinking too much alcohol. That is a rarity. So typically it's more of an external um, referral source. Many of our clients come in through the – uh, through legal involvement, through court involvement, they've um, have some type of legal charge. It could be uh, directly related to substance use. They could be charged with underage possession of alcohol or possession of marijuana, or it may be something like an assault charge or truancy, and then when they go to court, they test positive for substances and they're referred. So certainly for us, uh, the court-involved youth is a big referral source. Additionally, the, the schools will also serve as a pretty big referral source if kids have brought paraphernalia to school, if they've shown up at school intoxicated, that will oftentimes trigger a referral. And then parents as well, if a, if a parent is really struggling with their adolescent and um, noticing signs and, and symptoms of substance use, they may call and refer the youth in. So um, so generally the adolescents aren't coming in the door saying, hey, I'm really happy to be here. Let's get started with this <laughs> therapy thing. You know, I'm, I'm here to work. So, But the beautiful thing about the ACRA model is that we really, by being that uplifting and supportive model, we we acknowledge that. So I'll tell a youth when they come in and, you know, and they're kind of slumped over, maybe making fair to poor eye contact and shrugging their shoulders, I'll really join with them. I'll say, you know, I totally understand, you know, how you how you would feel being here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere that, you know, I was forced to be as well. So if you can, you know, we really try to join with them and acknowledge and validate how they're feeling. Um, that goes a long way to really getting them engaged and developing that rapport. 
And then as they go throughout our 14-week program, they really begin to see that, hey, I mean, you're, we're here to work on their goals. We're here to support them, to, to teach them skills, to really identify their own reinforcers or rewards for either reducing their substance use or abstaining for, from their use. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing when, when that happens. Uh, I just finished this past Monday with a client that I had been working with for about three and a half months in treatment. I'll uh, protect confidentiality, of course, but just to give some general um, comments on this youth. He was a 17-year-old. He came in to do his assessment with me again about three and a half months ago, and he was one of those youth that came in through the arm of the court system. He came in with his mom, and I think he had been ambushed. I don't think his mom had told him where he was going when he got up at 9 o'clock in the morning. So he was very angry, wouldn't make eye contact with his mom, um, would not answer really more than one or two word answers during his assessment. And I really tried to just reach out and say again, like, I understand you don't want to be here. I'm still very excited to work with you. You seem like you're a really neat kid. And by the end of this treatment, which just ended this past Monday, the kid had gone from almost failing out of school. He's a high school senior, a bright kid, but had some some truancy issues and some underperformance in several of his classes. Went from, you know, again almost failing school to now he's on track to graduate this June. He has a part-time job at a local grocery store that he's been able to maintain, um, and he's also on track to attend community college in the fall. And so. Just a great example of how a youth can really progress through this treatment. Again, youth saying, hey, I don't want to be here at the beginning, but at the end really being able to, to get a lot out of treatment, not only just in reducing his substance use, but really in increasing his functioning in these other areas. Um, he, he also, as we did the last family session this past Monday, he and his mother were making eye contact with each other. They were practicing positive communication skills. One of the exercises that we do in the family session is that we have the adolescent and the parent turn toward each other and say three positive things at the beginning of the session because we feel that it's important to set a positive tone. And they did a, just a terrific job with that. So it's just it's, it's a pleasure um, to work to work using this model. Susan, um, do you recognize a difference between recreational drug use, uh, abuse, and dependence? Uh, do you find this useful when you do intake? Do you find it useful when you measure outcomes? Tell me about this. Well. Um, yeah, definitely there there is a difference. I mean, when you're talking about adolescence, oftentimes we know that by the time um teenagers graduate from from high school, most have experimented with alcohol or drugs. We also know from the research that the majority of those youth are not going to have serious problems um that require treatment. So, um, you know, what what we know in terms of those that that need treatment is that it, that their use of alcohol and drugs has affected a lot of different areas of their life. And for example, you know maybe their grades have have gotten worse, or they've changed their peer group, or they've dropped out of extracurricular activities, or 
they've started getting in trouble with the law. So it's when alcohol and drug use impacts all these other areas of their life that I think treatment is really needed. We don't necessarily um, see a lot of dependence with adolescents just because their substance use has not been over the number of years that you see when you get into working with adults who have been using for decades. Um, but we still do see some dependence. Um, so, and, and as you know, that's based on symptoms that have been outlined in the, you know, the, the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of the Psychiatric uh, Association. Um, do you ever get a case where uh, the parent like finds a one joint and totally flips out and just uh, is really you know strict about drug use and kind of inappropriately pushes their child into treatment or something? I'm going to refer that to Jennifer since since she's the <clears throat> one that's involved in, in treatment on an ongoing basis. Jennifer, have you had that experience? You know, it's a great question, and I would have to say that is has been very rare. Uh, typically, what we see, again, is going to be your youth that, whose use has escalated to the point where there's court involvement, there are truancy issues in school, there are behavioral issues in the home. Um, we, we haven't tended to see a lot of the overreaction, um, as it were. If anything, we probably tend to see the opposite, the inverse of that, where there, and this may be because there's parents that are also substance using as well in the home, and it's an environmental um, situation for for the adolescent, and it's only because the adolescent's been you know, there's been a legal charge or something that's brought them in, but but not not typically, I'd say we haven't seen that. Okay, I wonder if that's due to the population that you're addressing. Um, I'm just going to bring up a case because we had it, her on the show some a few months back. Uh, Cindy Drew Etler was talking about her experiences in Straight Inc., where she'd only like had uh, two beers in her life and uh, smoked marijuana a couple times, but didn't know that she had to inhale it. And but her mother was very upset with her behavior because she was running away because her stepfather was molesting her sexually. And so she got slammed into straight ink treatment for like two or three years and couldn't get out. And you know, I assume you know straight. Yeah. Well, scared straight. It's very not, not scared, not scared straight, not, straight. Uh, okay. The other, the other straight ink. It's basically a therapeutic community where you're restrained. You're okay. physically assaulted. You're mentally broken down, confronted constantly. It's, it was like three years of constant daily confrontation and, Mm-hmm. You know, really horrible. Um, uh, a lot of these have shut down. They've been trying to. I mean, they were outlawed for adults ages ago, but there's uh, <laughs> still some teenagers getting stuck in them. So I, mm-hmm. I mean, I know there are cases like this where the parents, you know, totally inappropriately refer their children to treatment. So I'm wondering if that's if you think this doesn't happen because you have good screening, you address different populations, or do you have any ideas? Well, we well certainly- I, I'll go ahead, Susan. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that the programs that we work with uh, typically use what I'd call an evidence-based assessment. And so 
this assessment, you know, ask them how how much they're using and ask a lot about all the consequences and everything or, or, or about how it's impacted other areas of their life. And, um, you know, if there's minimal use, even reported by the the youth and no evidence that there is more than more than that very minimal use which your use I'm sorry which you're reporting that individual reported we would not recommend treatment for them and we would probably also be asking questions on the assessment about abuse um uh, and, and you know maybe um the individual wouldn't feel comfortable talking about that in an assessment but that would be a question so I think also it's important to note that in in most situations that I'm aware of, um, nobody is going to be slapped into a two or three year or even a one month residential program until they've first been in outpatient treatment to see if that meets their needs. So uh, that's pretty rare in in the programs I know about. And uh, Jennifer, maybe you could respond to that in terms of your experience. Yes, I agree, concur completely. That's exactly where I was going in terms of the assessment tool that we use. We really would thoroughly assess not only substance um, use patterns and history, but we assess for mental health issues, which would include trauma. We assess you know, physical, medical health, vocational, environmental living situations. So we really try to get a very good holistic picture of that youth before we make treatment recommendations. And just as Susan said, we don't admit everybody into treatment that comes through our door for an assessment. Um, we really do have to look at each individual and what what their functioning is and what their needs are before we admit to treatment. And the other point I would make that also that Susan made is just in terms of treatment, we always look at the least restrictive treatment. So we wouldn't assess somebody necessarily and say, oh, you need to go to residential, you need a 30-day program, you need a six-month program. We're going to typically assess and try the least restrictive treatment, which is typically outpatient um, treatment. And then we're going to work through outpatient treatment. So let's say that our uh, youth for whatever reason, doesn't have a good response with outpatient treatment, then we might try the level up. So in our uh, agency, in our environment, that would be intensive in-home services where we would have a therapist come to the home several times a week. So it's really going to be a progressive um, move, not um, not just that you know push toward residential. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, I had an assessment well, about 20 years ago now, uh, but I was uh, self-referred and I was getting an assessment. And my assessor wrote down all kinds of answers to questions that he never asked me. Um, one of the most surprising was he wrote down that I had a hidden stash of alcohol. Well, I lived alone. I wasn't hiding booze from myself. So it was like, you know, where did you get these from? I looked at all these answers. Well, later I took these, you know, I... I I found out that I could get copies of my assessments. I had them sent to me, and I said, you know, what? what? He made up all these answers. He didn't ask me any of these questions. He just made them up. And, you know, he was like, well, you're going to do the 12 steps, and I don't care if it kills you. That's the only thing that I'm going to recommend to you. And it's like, because I went in asking for a cognitive behavioral approach. (laughs) Well, that was 20 years ago, so I'm... I think there's been a lot of changes since. I mean, things are getting a lot better. Things were not good 20 years ago, for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. Not good. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, the assessments that 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 I'm most familiar with, and I know that Jennifer used, is a series of yes/no questions. So there's no way that there would be something on there that the individual, you know, totally foreign to what the individual responded in the assessment. And and that assessment is called the Global Appraisal of Individual Needs or or the Gain. Okay. Well, this gets us right uh, into the next question that was uh, on my list here, which is, uh, is residential treatment the best? Should most uh, people with substance abuse, most youth with substance abuse problems go to residential? Um, my answer would be no. Um, in this country, the majority of youth who are in treatment go to outpatient treatment, Um there may be for some for some youth residential may be a, an option but as we both talked about i think that it's very important that treatment be um that they first be in a, the least restrictive environment which is outpatient treatment because after all if someone is using substances and if an adolescent is using substances we believe that that's partially related to their environment and if you take them out of that environment and put them in a residential treatment, then they don't have the opportunity to use the skills that we want to teach them in terms of, you know, improving their relationships and and, and trying out new pro-social activities. Um, I think, for me, residential treatment is... Uh, is an option when an adolescent has tried outpatient treatment several times and continues to have uh, a lot of problems in a lot of different areas and maybe needs to have a period where they're briefly removed from their environment uh, so that they can detox and that they so that they can learn some new skills and then go back out and um, hopefully have some, con not hopefully, but really should have some continuing care as they reintegrate into their school, into their home, um, some support as they're doing that. But, again, I, I see that as a, a fairly brief um, inpatient treatment and just for a very small minority uh, need need that kind of treatment. Have there been any studies that have compared residential treatment with uh, outpatient treatment? There have been some studies that have done that. I, I think that um, most of those studies um, have been somewhat problematic and that they haven't looked, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily um, start with use that are appropriate for residential treatment to begin with. So you have to be very careful when you are doing that kind of work and that you um, randomly assign to residential or outpatient the um, um, people that are have the most severe level of problems, and a, and a lot of the studies have not done that. So they didn't. Uh, well, they didn't. They didn't uh, look at severity of problem, but then they didn't find much difference in the effectiveness of the two treatments. Is that is that it? Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to go back. I think that there are some that haven't found much difference in the effectiveness of treatment, but there's just so many different variables involved that um, when I've looked at those studies, I think that there's a lot of problems with how they were done. 
But again, I'm not promoting residential treatment wholesale. I do believe that outpatient treatment is the treatment of choice for the majority of adolescents and just a small minority might benefit from residential treatment. Well, I can, I kind of concur with you from everything that I've learned too, and I think even with adults, for a lot of adults that decide they want to change their behavior, you know, I'd recommend before you check into even outpatient that you try getting a self help book or try making some changes on your own because you might just find that you'll succeed. Mhm. Yes, definitely. So, how might this approach differ from other approaches that are used with adolescents? Well, I think that the the good news is that more and more uh, treatment programs are using evidence-based treatment. So that's the good news. I think we've talked about um, uh, some old approaches that tended to use more confrontation, and we've all agreed that's that's not good. It's not effective, and it's you know adolescence. I mean, that's that's the last time or the last point in someone's life you want to use a confrontational approach. So. Um, and then um, I, there are, you know, a lot of treatment programs in the United States that are primarily 12-step, and we think that 12-step, you know, can work for some adolescents, but we don't mandate that all adolescents that we treat have to agree that they'll be involved in 12-step. If they want it, if it's something that resonates with them, then we would certainly say, hey, that's great uh, pro-social um, activity for you to be involved in. But it's not, we don't believe that there's just one way in terms of for everybody. We want to find out what works for that individual, what they're interested in. So, And Jennifer can probably speak more to this in terms of how ACRA might differ from other programs that she's uh, known about. Yes, certainly. I've been involved in my agency. We we are a believer in using evidence-based, research-based programs. And one of the things about ACRA that our uh, therapists and our clients really embrace is the fact that we really can individualize that treatment to meet the client's needs. So that's the beautiful thing about using these procedures in ACRA. Susan mentioned at the beginning a tool called the happiness scale. So the happiness scale is a tool that we use to find out, being strength-based, to find out what's going well for that adolescent as well as areas that they may want to work on. And it has 16 different life areas. The first three speak directly to drugs, alcohol, uh, and marijuana. And then the others are different life areas in terms of relationships with others, personal habits like getting up on time, um, school situation, uh, relationship with parents. And we're really able to get in and do very individualized treatment planning. So this youth that I mentioned earlier that just graduated from our program, early on with his happiness scale, his area that he chose that he wanted to work on was school. Because like I said, he was failing, you know, in danger of not passing his senior year, not um, graduating with his friends. So he chose that area. And as we went in and did some problem solving, come to find out this youth had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and it was not treated. 
So he was having difficulty focusing, difficulty staying on task. So one of the things that, that we were able to do is talk with his mom, get him assessed by a physician, and get him on some appropriate medication uh, to, to treat that. And he was able to really then link that back to his substance use because he didn't need to smoke the marijuana to stay focused and to deal with the stress from school. So it's it's a great model in being able to individualize really our, our work, the client's goal setting, and the interventions that we do uh, with the youth. And How I would just – I'll go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead and finish what you're saying. Yeah, so so that's really, as I was saying, what I would see is one of the, the, the major differences in this model. Additionally, we do talk about, we have tools that we use to really assess their, their substance using behavior. We use a tool called a functional analysis that really breaks down the, the using behavior. We look at what happens before they use, both internally and externally triggers. We look at both the positive and the negative consequences of their use. Um, the negative consequences are where we can find reinforcers for sobriety, and the positive consequences are important to us because we really want to help the kids find healthier ways to access those positive consequences. Oftentimes the kids will come in and they'll be like, well, why, why do you want to find out? Oh, gosh, I'm surprised. You want to know what I like about using? I thought you were here to tell me that drugs were bad. <laughs> and and we, you know, we're like, no, we, we, you know, we want to know what, what it is that you get out of using because let's help you find healthier ways to, you know, to, to get that. Um, like my, you know, kid was able to deal with his stress from school by smoking marijuana. So let's go in again, let's problem solve and look at other ways to deal with your school situation so you won't need to use um, the marijuana. So we do spend a lot of time really, again, looking holistically. We do a lot on increasing their their healthy and positive activities, which I think also sets this treatment model apart from, from other models that we've used in the past. We really want them to develop just a, a wide array of healthy and positive um, hobbies and interests that they can engage in. Well, it's hugely important to look at both the pros and cons of the substance use and the pros and cons of the change that you're trying to make, you know, because you know, the, people have looked at this. When you only look at the bad things about using drugs, all the good things kind of get repressed in your subconscious, and they make you relapse. They make you use again because you didn't deal with them. You didn't become aware of them. They have, you have to be aware of both the pros and cons of what you do now and the pros and cons of the change you want to make. It's really essential. Yes, we ab we absolutely agree with that. And by the time they've come into our doors and they're meeting with us in treatment, they already know all the bad things anyway. So they don't need just another person. You know, they sometimes think, oh, well, you're going to be the PO and you're going to, you know, you're going to, if I have a positive drug screen, you're going to, you know, send me back to the court and get me locked up. And we really take a very different approach. So in our model, if a client has a positive drug screen, we're really going to look at, okay, so what are the steps that led to that decision to use? Let's really, let's do a behavior chain. Let's chain that out or let's, you know, do an analysis of that uh, relapse or that slip episode. And we want to deal with it from a therapeutic standpoint rather than a punitive standpoint. Yeah, people, the kids get this preached at them so early. Um, and I remember one episode of South Park, it's one of my favorites, um, where they, they come in and tell, you know, 
they tell the kids how terrible cigarettes are and how bad smoking is. And, uh, you know, these other kids from the other school are saying, we're so cool because we don't smoke. And, you know, the first thing they did after that presentation was all go out and try cigarettes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you deal with relapse in this approach? Well, we we acknowledge that uh, relapse can and, and will happen uh, to a lot of the people in treatment. And so Jennifer talked a little bit about uh, that functional analysis approach that we use when we're first talking to someone about their substance use and what preceded it and what happened after it. And we would do a similar type of exercise when someone did relapse. We would talk to, to him or her about what led up to that, what exactly happened to that, uh, and then, you know, what was the consequences of that and sort of plan what what you might do differently the next time. So, again, we are not going to do any punishing verbally or otherwise. We're going to use that as a learning tool to help them figure out how to avoid that in the future. And what kind of training did the therapists get that use this approach? We're both jumping in here because uh, that that's a really important question, and I think that's that's always a good question if a parent or another concerned other is is investigating a particular treatment approach is is to look at the kind of training that's involved, and we have a very rigorous training um, sequence that therapists go through. Um, most most therapists that we've worked with are master's level therapists and even with that degree of, of training, they often haven't had specific training in how to treat adolescents with substance use disorder. So they would come to a centralized training uh, with trainers like Bob Myers and Jennifer Smith-Ramey and others and they would we would go through all these different procedures that we've talked about. We have around 18 or so of these different procedures. So they would learn about them, they would practice them during our training session. And then when they go back to their agency and they start working with adolescents and parents, they actually record their sessions and those sessions are reviewed by experts who give them feedback on what they did well, what they could improve, and they go through a certification process before they they actually are certified as an ACRA therapist. And that process takes six months to a year. So it is rigorous, and we we do feel like that it really helps people uh, learn this this approach well. And and Jennifer does a lot in, in terms of training, so I'll see if she has anything to add to that. Sure, and, and and in my experience, again, being involved in my agency with several different evidence-based models, I think it's the training component of ACRA that, to me, really strengthens this model um, just immeasurably because, really, after a clinician, and I've gone through the, the certification and the, the training both as a clinician and a clinical supervisor, and it really is helpful in being able to deliver the model with with a high degree of what we call fidelity because that's the other important piece about delivering evidence-based treatment, that it's not quite as simple as going to a one- or two-day training and then coming back to your agency and, okay, so now I'm trained in this model and here I am doing my sessions and so forth. It really is 
that process of recording your sessions and getting feedback on them. And, and in our model, so our, our trainers and our raters also take that very positive and supportive approach in that we'll give feedback and praise on what the clinician did well throughout their sessions, and then we'll give constructive feedback on what they um, could do even better to improve their skill set. So most of the clinicians, uh, including myself, at the end of the training will really um, come out and say, you know, that was that was intensive training, but I felt supported throughout the training, and I really feel like I know this model well, and I'm going to be able to then work well with my youth and get really positive results because that's really what it's all about is helping these kids increase their functioning and getting what they want to get out of life. Well, now there's a number, there's all kinds of different treatment programs out there, um, and some are pretty good, and, and some are pretty awful. I speak as I've been doing interviews for a couple of years now. Uh, but if a parent is looking for one, how do they tell that they're getting a good program and not getting an awful program for their kid? Yeah, that that's a good and a, an important question, and um, I think the parents really. Um, you know, should feel confident about becoming informed consumers, just like you would if your child had a medical problem like diabetes. You'd you'd want to make sure that they were having the best treatment available for that particular problem. So I would encourage parents to learn something about evidence-based treatment. Um, there's a book out which maybe you have... Uh, talked about before on your show called Inside Rehab by Ann Fletcher and I think that's yes. a very I think that's a very helpful book that's available for the lay public to learn about treatment in the United States and it does have a chapter on adolescent treatment and it does have uh, in that chapter questions that can be asked but for sure parents should ask what kind of treatment do you do here what's the evidence supporting that treatment what kind of training do your therapists have? Um, how how will you know when my child is ready to be discharged? How is this treatment developmentally appropriate for my child? So I think that it uh, it's important to just ask a lot of questions um, when a parent is investigating and and see you know see what kind of answers they get. You know the thing that treatment programs really can't do is give you someone to call up that went through the program because of confidentiality. They can't do that. So it's important to learn the kind of questions that you could ask and, and ask about outcomes and, you know, how if if somebody says, well, I really think that your child needs to go to residential treatment, oh, you know, as we talked earlier, I really say, so so why do you think that's what needs to happen now? Couldn't we try outpatient treatment first? So, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, parents shouldn't be afraid to ask a lot of questions and, and see what kind of answers they get uh, and maybe ask other other pe professionals in the community like physicians and others what they know about different treatment programs. Mm -hmm. Well, Ann Fletcher will be on the show in two weeks from tonight on the 11th, okay. and we will be talking about her book. Actually, I found out about you guys from her book. <laughs> okay, so, great. So, yeah, yeah, she uh, did a really good job, I think, with that book. Excellent, excellent. Um, 
you know, I because you mentioned this, I want to talk about this a little bit too. Because if uh, somebody is trying to push residential treatment on you, there's the, the first thing I would be very suspicious because it's it's far more costly. Um, there's in lots of cases, as we talked about, there's no evidence that it's more effective. It's not the first line of defense that you would that you would use. And there are other problems too. Even if you know, even if you do choose residential, you should be able to ask. You should ask, "Can I contact my child? Can I contact my child every day?" Um, you know, or else, in how long is this treatment going to last? Is it going to be twenty-eight days, or is it going to be open-ended and you'll keep my child there for two years, three years? Um, you know, these are very important things, and I would be, you know, very cautious if anyone said. Your child needs residential treatment right off the bat. Agreed. Uh, totally we would. Agree. We would as well. Okay. Um, so I'm going to get. I have one question left on my list here. And does successful treatment mean total abstinence? The youth will never drink or use illegal drugs again as long as they live. <laughs> okay. Well, you know there may be some youth that that's. That's true for just as, as, you know, you mentioned someone may use self-help books and may change behavior that way. And so, yeah, I think that it may be true for some youth. But um, one of the things that we have to realize in working with adolescents is they are heading into the age range where the most use happens in our society and there's the most expectation that they will use as they move into the college years, we're all familiar with, or, or those of us in the in this field anyway are familiar with the binge drinking that goes on in, in colleges. So they're really swimming upstream in terms of trying to, to stay totally abstinent. So um, we know that it may happen, and that's why it's so important that their first experience in treatment is a positive one, and that's that's another good thing I really think about ACRA. So if they go down the road and they start to develop problems again, that they know that they can go back into treatment. And it's also good that we're now developing these sober um, campuses. So there are some even university campuses like Texas Tech University and I think it's Augsburg in Minnesota that uh, have have programs that are really for youth that um, want to stay in recovery and, and want to be supported in that recovery. So. Um, no, we don't expect that they'll never use again, but what we do hope is that they know where to go for, for help um, to help them, um, you know, try to maintain as best recovery that as they can over time. Okay, I want to ask another question. Um, and I don't think you, I don't know if you've been studying this long enough to answer this in terms of experience or not, but you can answer your opinion if you don't have the experience yet. But when, uh, you know, when kids go through treatment, when they're, you know, being wild youths and messing around a little with drugs and alcohol and getting in some trouble, how about when they're adults, you know, will they, will a lot of them be moderate social drinkers or Will they always be on this? Uh, they have to either be, you know, totally addicted or totally abstinent. 
Well, as, as I said, um, I think that um, the majority of adolescents have some experimentation, not to say that all are wild that are experimenting. Some have minimal experimentation. But we, we do know that out of all the adolescents, only about 4.5% are thought to really need treatment. So, so that's during the adolescent stage. And if you're asking me if some youth age out, yes, the majority of youth do age out of having, having problems that require treatment. And so even if you went through treatment as a youth, that doesn't mean that, you know, when you're an adult, you can't become a moderate social drinker. Is that correct? I would, yes, I think that's correct. Uh, other people might debate that, but my opinion is that it's possible. Um, well, I would agree, too. I mean, some people might find that abstinence is the easier path, and I think that's uh, common. But, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they quit their addiction. Say, I know a lot of people that quit heroin. Now they uh, like to have a drink now and then, but they're not drunkards. They were never drunkards. <laughs> right, right. And we've seen the same with our youth. I think that goes back to your previous question about does successful treatment mean that the youth will never drink or use illegal drugs again? And it's really based, again, on that youth setting their own goals and their own, um, you know, where what, what they want to get out of treatment. I mean, ideally, certainly we are an abstinence-based program, but we can also modify that. Um, you know, in terms of using a harm reduction, we use procedures called sobriety sampling that really allow the youth to um, sample periods of sobriety. We, you know, go over some, some coping strategies and skills and, and hope that during those periods they are able to use their new skills and to find their sober life more re rewarding. But we don't fool ourselves and think, oh, gosh, when our kids graduate, they'll never use. So my kid that graduated on Monday, um, I, I don't, fool myself and think, well, he will never, ever take a drink or never um, smoke a joint again, but he now has the skill set. He now has the improved relationship with his mother. He's now on track to graduate and go to college. So all of these things are more rewarding to him at this point than his previous levels of substance use. Okay, well, we're running out of time. I'd like to thank you very much for being our guests tonight, Susan Godley and Jennifer Smith-Ramey. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ken, for inviting Thanks us. Thanks so much. And everybody, come back next week. Our guest will be Gail Dekoff, who will be talking about multidimensional family therapy. We'll see you all then. Thank you, everyone, and good night. <laughs>